Hi everyone, welcome to UCC. I'm Ben, the Young Adults Leader here. And today Raj is gone, but don't worry, uh, we'll be alright with me, I hope. Um, so today we're actually going to be talking about a little bit of the Book of Romans. And the Book of Romans is a pretty dense letter that we often know quotes from and random sayings, but may not actually know what the letter is about. Paul wrote this book while on one of his many missionary journeys. As we've learned about in Corinthians, Paul was often visiting cities, preaching, and encouraging the local church. Sometime after writing 2 Corinthians, Paul had made his way back to the city of Corinth, and there he probably heard a lot more about the church in Rome and all that was going on there. He decided to write the book of Romans here and send it on with a local from Corinth. The city of Rome was the center of the universe as far as the uh, locals were concerned. It had the greatest leaders, the most power, the, the highest culture, and it showed with era-defining architecture, including monuments, theaters, state buildings, and the Colosseum, which could hold 45,000 people. It was the center of the universe. The population was about the size of the GTA way back then. This wasn't just a capital city. It was the capital city. With so much wealth and power in one place, there were a lot of citizens who uh, were hoping to advance. A lot of people were really in that grind-set mindset. Uh, there, there was, however, um, great wealth inequality, and it was very difficult to move up unless you had good connections in the upper classes. If you didn't have good connections in the upper classes and you were a lower-tier citizen, all you could really hope for was your next meal and a roof over your head. With this great wealth inequality um, and overflowing of opulence in the center of the city, there was every vice imaginable if you had the money. And so the rich lived very, very decadent and depraved lifestyles. On the other side of this depraved nature, there was also a saturation of religion in the culture. There were temples to every conceivable god and daily rituals and sacrifices that everyone really took part in. They were constantly busy, either seeking approval from the people around them or from their deities. Their religious activities were generally understood as a trade. If the god did what you wanted, then you would do something in return. And normally, these trades were binding. To persuade the gods to favor your requests, a worshiper might make offerings of food or wine, or might carry out a ritual sacrifice of some animal. So Rome was a very busy life, where you could easily be caught up in the daily activities and celebrations going on around you and where everyone was looking to make a life for themselves. And in the middle of all of this hustle and bustle was a newborn church. And they were just trying to find their way. The Church of Rome is one of the most Gentile early churches. This is actually because there was so much division about who Jesus was between the Jews and the Gentiles that Emperor Claudius decided that it was causing too much uproar in the city and he kicked out all the Jews. They were all just kicked out of the city. Eventually, the Jews returned to the city, but by this point, there was a bit of divide between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles in this Roman church. The Gentiles that had remained in the city didn't have that full understanding of the Jewish context of salvation, as some of the other more mixed churches would have in the surrounding areas. Paul had been desiring to go there for quite some time, because he saw himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. And this was a very Gentile church. So knowing this situation, 
that this was a church that may not have the strongest traditional foundation, that it was full of Gentiles and a powerful and busy city. Also, most of the people he had never met. He decided to write a letter that summarizes everything about faith in Christ. Everything is a lot of things to write about, and it's even more to talk about in the next couple minutes. So we're going to focus on just one verse, Romans 12.1. But before we jump in, I'll summarize the everything of the first 11 chapters. Romans, at its base, is a letter laying out the eternal plan of God for the salvation of sinners. The eternal plan of God for the salvation of sinners. Paul does this by explaining that we're all sinners in desperate need of being saved from our sins. Like Romans chapter 3.23, if you can see that on the screen, great. If not, you can follow around in your Bible. We'll be jumping around all over Romans. So Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That kind of lays out the foundation of who we are and what we are. He lays out that while the law of Moses was good and holy, it can't counteract the power of sin. But through the righteousness of God, salvation is provided. Chapter 5, verse 19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. He also explains Christ's sacrifice as central to God's plan of salvation, showing that the old way of Moses is no longer the way and that faith alone in Christ is the one path. He talks about our new life in Christ as well as our future hope of glory. Uh, 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He ends chapter 11 talking about God's great plan and sovereignty, as well as giving thanks for God's great gifts and mercy. This ends the formal theology of the letter, and chapter 12 starts off with some practical instruction based off this life-changing knowledge. If you've never read Romans, or if it's been a while, I challenge you to sit down and read the whole thing front to back. It should only take you about an hour, and it's so packed with good truth that I can't imagine it being a waste of your time. So here we are, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This verse breaks down into three distinct parts. Why you should do the action, what the action is, and what this action functions as. Why? In view of God's mercy. What? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And what does this action do? This is your true and proper worship. So, starting in number one, in view of God's mercy. There's a saying I often hear when I run into verses like this. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to look at what it's there for. So, this therefore kind of references the entire past 11 chapters. All of this deep theology, this huge foundation of truth that uh, salvation is. John MacArthur once said, um, your orthopraxy, oh, did I? I must have it in a different spot. Anyway, I'll just read it to you. It'll be great. 
Your orthopraxy is a direct reflection of your orthodoxy. Your ethical behavior is a direct reflection of your dogma. Your duties flow out of your doctrine. It's what you believe that essentially designs your behavior. There is no basis for right action except right doctrine. Orthopraxy means good or true actions, and these are the reflection of your orthodoxy, your good or true beliefs. So Paul, a, a solid foundation of truth provides a strong home for action to happen. So Paul refers to these great theological foundations as the mercies of God. His description of the eternal plan of God for the salvation of sinners is truly a great mercy. He mentions things like God's great love for us, his grace, the peace that we have, faith, comfort, power, hope, patience, kindness, righteousness, forgiveness, security, eternal life, adoption into his family, and a whole lot more. The first 11 chapters are packed with the mercies of God. Of course, the greatest mercy of all was God sending Jesus as a sacrifice to die on the cross in our place, freeing us from the penalty and power of sin. It's because of these great mercies that we can consider action. It's because of the truth of God that we can take any step. What is that step? Offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. That sounds painful. What is a sacrifice? Sacrifices are all the way through the Bible, literally from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, way back in the day, we have the story of Cain and Abel. With Cain and Abel, they each brought an offering to God. Um, here it is. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. The word gift here can be translated both as um, offering, sacrifice, gift, or tribute. This sacrifice shaped the rest of each of their lives. If you know the story, that, that differs in time. Uh, they each took something that was an outcome of their hard work, and instead of enjoying the fruits of their labor, they gave it to God instead. At its core, that's all that a sacrifice is. Surrendering something valuable for hope of his favor. Surrendering something that you value, that you're willing to exchange for something else. In a sense, most transactions are sacrifice. You're, you're sacrificing some money, which was some of your time, for some object that you want. Everything we do can be looked at as some form of sacrifice. But not all sacrifices are well received. Here we see that there can be pleasing or acceptable sacrifices and unacceptable sacrifices. How can we make sure that our sacrifice is acceptable? Well, let's, let's look at the distinctions of this sacrifice. Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord, and Abel gave the best portions of the firstborn lambs. For a subsistence farmer like Abel, this was quality food. It was also his guarantee of future food. As a firstborn lamb, this would have been the, the many meals down the road. So by giving this gift to God, 
he was truly entrusting his life and future to God. God considers himself of a pretty high value. Giving an afterthought, some extra grain, was not nearly as valued as giving the best piece of, the, of what Abel had created with his hard work. How often do we give God the afterthought of our lives? Whether it's our time, our talents, or our treasures, we often keep the best for ourselves. We consume entertainment and only afterwards remember about having a little quiet time with God. And normally that's like right before bed as you're falling asleep. We're willing to donate and tithe after we've bought ourselves all the newest toys and subscriptions. That's a weak sacrifice. That's just some extra grain. That's not the firstborn lambs, the best portions of the firstborn lambs. So a sacrifice can't be an afterthought. It ha- and it has to be of great importance. There's another great sacrifice just a few chapters later in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 22. This is where Abraham is told by God to go and sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. Abraham had been desperate for children his whole life, and Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promise to him, of a great lineage. However, his child quickly became the most important thing in his life. Isaac was Abraham's greatest possession, his most valuable relationship, and his entire future. But God wanted to remind Abraham that it wasn't Isaac, but God that was his greatest possession, his most valuable relationship, and his entire future. So, it was time for the sacrifice. So Abraham went up the mountain, made an altar with Isaac, tied him up, and lifted the knife. Only then did God step in and show Abraham that this was a test. At this point in time, Isaac was in his 30s. He could see what was happening. And he didn't overpower his dad. He willingly listened to his dad's instructions, got tied up, and was willing to give his life because that's what his dad said. Dad, I'm not going to do that, so don't ask. For this sacrifice, the importance was not in the final action, but in his state of mind. God didn't even want Isaac to die. He wanted Abraham's idolization of Isaac to die. Abraham had to be willing to give up everything he held dear, all those good things, and seek only the Lord's will, the great, for the sacrifice to take place. After the times of the patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac came the nation of Israel, and God set up a formal system of sacrifice for them. They had five major types of sacrifices. The burnt, grain, peace, sin, and guilt offerings. If you came to young adults, maybe you heard a little bit about some of these sacrifices. We're not going to jump into all of them, but each one had a slightly different purpose, with different gifts of animals and baking being given for... um, to ask for favor, to ask for forgiveness, just to praise, for for all sorts of different reasons. The Jewish people were very familiar with all of these, and they were a part of daily life. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time digging into the meaning of each of these, but the important part for the Jews was that these sacrifices should be us giving what God wants and should be a part of daily life. The Romans had their own system. I mentioned it briefly at the beginning, but in essence, what mattered to the Romans 
well, they're religious people, was not your daily behavior, but correct adherence to the religious rituals. They had shrines at home where they would pray and sacrifice. They'd often have festivals that they believed the gods took part in. So they'd set the table with some extra spots for the gods that they wanted to honor. They'd put the food on those plates and leave it just for the gods. Um, When they really wanted things to go their way, they'd make prayers asking for it, offering to do something in return. Maybe an action, maybe a sacrifice, maybe giving up something for a while. To get on the gods' good side, they'd also offer sacrifices beforehand too. And these would normally be animal sacrifices. So Paul wrote, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to a church made up of two distinct cultures, both steeped in the tradition of sacrifice. He knew that between these two cultures, they understood that a sacrifice is surrendering something valuable for hope of God's favor. That a sacrifice can't be an afterthought. It has to be of something of value. It's giving away something good to be replaced with something great. And they knew that sacrifices must be made in the right state of mind and that they should be part of our daily life. There's one problem with all of this. All these sacrifices are dead. And all of them are outside of ourselves. They're not us. So how do our bodies become a sacrifice? These sacrifices ceased once they were given. How do our bodies become a living, ceasing thing. Paul actually talks about this in the first half of Romans. So we're going to jump around again a bit in the book of Romans. So in Romans chapter 3, oh, well, in Romans chapter 3 verse 12, Paul sets the expectation for what one of our bodies is like. Romans chapter 3, 12. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. That seems like something that definitely needs to cease. That would be great to get rid of. Paul says that no one is righteous, that we're all utterly evil, guilty. By the grace of God, that's not the end of the story. In Romans 6, verse 10, we find Christ saving the day. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. This verse is echoed in Romans 12.1. In Romans 12.1, we had offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And here, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So only through Christ can we have the chance to offer our bodies. Because of his sacrifice, the power of sin is broken, and we can give him this old evil life and he will fill us with new life. The final sacrifice that required true death was his sacrifice on the cross. So our old self will still die in the sacrifice, but we will be able to live in true life because he died. Offer our old ways to be replaced with his new ways. That sounds so wonderful. Life-changing. Well, life-ex-changing. But 
there's a bit of a catch. Right after talking about all this great stuff, Paul brings up slavery. So chapter 6, verse 16 says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Then verse 18, now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You're now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. Offering your bodies as a living sacrifice is willfully choosing slavery. It's giving up any control you have. It's giving up your desires, your dreams, your will, even your loved ones. It's putting those items on the altar and accepting their death. Of course, Paul says that you're going to be a slave one way or the other. Um, You're giving up one slavery for another. So maybe there's a cost with either path you take. In economics, I learned about a concept called opportunity cost. If, If you've ever studied economics or have heard of this, great. There's a, there's a great example for those of you who are sports people. I'm not, but here we go. Uh, when Kobe Bryant, the basketball player, was finishing high school, he had some choices to make, and there was going to be an opportunity cost for either path that he took. He could go straight and try to get into the NBA, missing out on the college experience, but nobody did that. Nobody did that. Everyone always went to college first, learned there for four years in a, in a high-quality team with your own peers, you got your education, and then from there, you were drafted into the NBA. So by trying to go straight for the NBA, he'd have the cost of giving up his college education, that experience with peers, and that, that more s- safe option. But if he went straight for the NBA, or no, but if he went to college, he'd miss out on something great from the NBA, that sweet paycheck. So he ended up choosing to go straight for the NBA, and he made it. He was the sixth person ever to do it, and the second in a whole generation. And it kind of worked out. Um, That opportunity cost was worth it for him. Sure, he never ended up doing college, but for him, it was a cost that was worth the sacrifice, if that makes sense. Whatever slavery we choose has an opportunity cost. It's going to cost us something, whichever path we take. We can choose Christ, but we'll lose out on the easy life. It will be hard. We won't always get what we want. We'll have to give up our vices and entertainment sometimes. We'll have to give up relationships that mean a great deal to us. We will have to give up a lot of our possessions. We could choose slavery to sin. We can then be free from the obligation to do right, as Paul says in Romans. Free from the obligation to do right. That's... That's some sort of freedom. We get to keep what we hold dear and seek our own fulfillment. But the slavery to sin is a dangerous spiral, covered in excitement and glamour, but reeking of death. After 11 chapters of doctrine, Paul finally turns practical, and the first thing he says is to give yourself entirely as a sacrifice to God? If only there was some middle ground. Wilbur Reese once said, I would like to buy... $3 of God, please. 
Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 of God, please. Wouldn't that be nice? That's what a lot of Christians are looking for. That's what's comfortable at the center of culture, like Raja always talks about. When Christianity is at the center of culture, it's normally a fake Christianity. It's only $3 of God. It's enough to look nice, to feel good, but not to change lives. The problem is, at the core, God is an extremist. He doesn't want a moderate amount of you. He doesn't want moments here or there or just some grain. You'll never be half slaved. Or, sorry, half saved. Uh, he wants you as his slave or not at all. He wants you as his slave or not at all. Our bodies as a living sacrifice means all of us at every moment. It's a high calling and it's hard. We will always be messing this up and battling through this. And that's okay because while we are his slaves, he has shown us the grace of considering us his sons and daughters. There's a bit of tension here. My parents are actually here today, but I don't think I ever thought of myself as their slave. Yeah, I had to do my fair share of chores and I had to follow all the household rules. Some of my siblings weren't as good as fo at following the rules, but I, I made sure to follow them. Um, but it wasn't a picture of slavery that you're used to. It was, it was childhood, not slavery. Paul actually clarifies this tension in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 to 17. So, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So, while we're slaves to God, we're not fearful slaves? Are we child slaves? No, that's not it. Um, there, it's hard to find the right analogy. It's really difficult to make a perfect analogy of our relationship with God. The purpose of both of these analogies and them being tied together is to show the absolute ownership God has of us while also showing the perfect belonging that we have in him. He is a gentle and loving dad. I've been thinking a lot about the role of dads recently. The role of a dad, or I guess any parent, is a severe and powerful responsibility. When you become a parent, in many ways, your life is no longer about you. It's your responsibility to teach, to encourage, and guide your children, to protect them from evil, and also reprimand and admonish them. It's a tough balance. They must always seek the best for their children, whether their children can see it or not. Often, that leads to dads having to make decisions that seem harsh. It's their responsibility. God is the same way. 
he sees it as a great joy to care for us. He earnestly wants the best for us. And there is true freedom in the path he has set for us, but it is set. While slavery may be a word that's a bit too harsh, it should be balanced by his deep parental love for us. As a counter to Wilbur's quote, um, here's Aaron Armstrong. He said this. You might remember this from one of Raja's sermons a little while back. But it does cost something to be a real Christian. According to the standards of the Bible, there are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made. An Egypt to be overtaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a person in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what we are to do. But why are we to do it? Because of God's mercy. That, that truth, that foundational truth of who God is and what he's done. What does this sacrifice function as? Well, let's go back to the verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This sacrifice is worship. It's not any worship either. It's your true and proper worship. Some of your versions might have something slightly different there. It might say spiritual worship or even rational service. Whatever it says, this is the pinnacle of what worship is. What do you think worship is? We often relegate worship to a few songs before and after a sermon. And there's nothing wrong with praising the Lord in song. That's amazing. It's great. But sometimes when we do this, we can forget the great power and calling that worship is. We can lose focus when it's the wrong genre or not our favorite song. But music can't produce worship. It's not the origin of worship. Worship is not a song. It's not a dance or any action at all. It's not even a feeling. These can certainly be vehicles to worship, but they aren't worship in and of itself. You can do all these things and never worship. Worshiping is spiritual, and it involves giving yourself completely to God. It's not a genre, but a lifestyle. It's a way of living. Well, living sacrifice. True, spiritual, proper worship is sacrifice. This worship is motivated from the mercies of God, from that foundational truth of who he is and what he's done. And it's a deep spiritual response. The source of true worship is the truth of God, the Bible. That's where worship flows from. Now that we've defined what this verse means, how does it look in our lives? Practically, what does offering our bodies as a living sacrifice look like? In Colossians chapter 3.23, we find this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Our rational service, our living sacrifice, is serving the Lord in everything we do, as if we are doing it only for him. 
and no one else. Have you ever done something really nice for somebody? Maybe you cleaned the house or bought flowers or did all the dishes or something like that, and then that person comes home and doesn't even notice? I'm very guilty of not noticing, so uh, I should probably work on that. But when that happens, do you feel angry, grumpy, upset that they didn't notice this great thing you did for them? Chances are, if that's the case, you weren't doing it just for them. You were doing it for how it would make you feel when they reacted. When we recalibrate and do everything as an act of worship to God, then a dumb husband or the wrong response won't have the same effect on you. You, Your fulfillment won't be coming from their interaction, their reaction, or how it makes you feel. It'll be coming from the fact that you did something as for the Lord and not for men. When you're doing your job, do you take shortcuts or slack off occasionally? Is that how you would thank someone who had saved your life? God wants every action, every moment to belong to him. So even if you're doing something for someone else, he is still taking ownership of that action. It is him that rewards, that supplies, and sustains. So when you're snippy or disrespectful, it doesn't really feel like you're living as a sacrifice, living in a way that belongs to God. When you ignore the less fortunate because you want some me time or it makes you a little uncomfortable, you're not living as a sacrifice. We often feel that we deserve something. Maybe it's a big thing, maybe it's just a a little thing, a, a moment or something. But it's all a lie. We haven't earned anything, and we don't choose what we deserve. As a slave of God, we belong entirely to him. And anything he chooses to give is a beautiful gift to the child that he cares deeply about. When he asks for something from us, we have no reason to say no, because whatever he's asked for already doesn't belong to us, it belongs to him. Some of you may know that I tend to be a little bit more reformed or Calvinist in my approach to faith. And yeah, that definitely informs how I learn and how I live. Oftentimes people will attempt to pit the ideas of free will against predetermination and want to know what I think of that. And at the end of the day, in the practical sense, I don't think it matters. As a Christian, whatever your view on that is, we're God's slaves and his children. And our duty is to sacrifice ourselves, our own desires and our wants our will, for his will. In the same way that Isaac probably didn't really want to die on top of that mountain. He was willing to sacrifice his will to his father as a sacrifice. The outworking of the lives of believers should be the same. Every moment is his. Every talent is his. Every penny is already his. Being a living sacrifice is just recognizing the reality of our relationship with God. So, because of Christ's sacrifice and all of God's great mercies, let us offer a real sacrifice. Something of value, not just the scraps. Something made with the right state of mind, not just an afterthought. Giving away the good for the great and making it a part of our daily lives. We need to give all of us. When we do this, it's more beautiful than any song. 
and more true than any other worship. It's understanding that God is not only our master, but also our deeply loving father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for all of your great mercies. Help us to internalize these truths, to recognize your great love and your desire to lead us into good things. Show us the areas in our lives that we have trouble surrendering to you. Remind us in those moments of who we belong to. Give us strength to live fully for you every day. Be with us this next week and thank you for continuing to transform us into the image of Christ. Amen.